Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Mallory Cara. Mallory is a journalist, editor, and professor who has experience in print, digital, and audio. Among many projects, she's currently teaching journalism at USC, is the lead producer of the soon-released Electric Futures podcast, and publishes a substack of job listings, West Coast Media Jobs. She's from New York City and is a graduate of NYU with a master's in screenwriting from USC. Hi, Mallory. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm looking forward to the conversation. What's your journalism origin story? When I was, I want to say about 16, I was in high school and one of my classmates was the editor of the school paper and he was trying to recruit people to the paper. And I had said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to, you know, but he kind of chased me down and was like, oh, but you're such a good writer. And like kind of got a chorus of people like during one of the free periods to be like, but you're such a good writer. You should join. You should join. And then finally, I just relented. I was like, fine, this sounds great. So he, I got some assignments. And one of the main like assignment that I got was that our math department like chair had left the year before and then came back under mysterious circumstances. Not really mysterious, but to high schoolers, it was mysterious. So I was sent on the case and I set up the interview just like, you know, just like any professional reporter, but I was a high schooler. I was like, hey, do you want to talk for this school paper? And I went in and I was interviewing the math department chair and I was kind of going for it. And he, and there was just a point where he just sat back and said, you were always so shy and now you're just going for the jugular. Who are you? And that was the moment where I was like, this is fun. And Previously, I was very shy. I, you know, again, having some, some like editor of the paper, like being like, you got to join this. I, I just, I just wanted to be left, you know, I was just like, oh, I'm just be here. And I quite honestly always felt like I was like, I just, I'll do high school. And then I just really wanted to go to college. But finding that I, I loved interviewing. I came out of my shell. So much that, again, a math department uh, chair was like, who are you? And then even writing the article, I felt like so alive. And I didn't know that you could do that. I didn't know that like that journalism was something you could do and that it was a profession. You know, I knew it was a profession. But I didn't know you could major in it until later in my high school years. I had previously cycled through wanting to be an environmental scientist, a doctor, a lawyer. I had gone through all these professions and I didn't realize it was like, no, you you want to be a journalist and tell all these stories and live these lives and kind of just take a deep dive into all of these topics. So that was kind of my aha moment in high school. Then I remained with the paper. And then immediately when I was applying to colleges, I looked up all the school papers. I was like, okay, I got to see their school paper before I choose. And you've gone on to have a very nice career. Is there anything in your background that lends itself to storytelling? So my parents were, have always been the these great news junkies. And it's so funny because they, they I grew up in New York. They live, they still live in New York. 
And there's always a moment where they have the news on. In fact, when I call them later, I'm sure I will hear the five o'clock news blaring in the background and then pausing to be like, hold on, hold on, something's happening. I always grew up with my parents having a subscription to one of New York's many, many newspapers. Their choice was Newsday because I think they they liked that there was also like a kids segment on Sundays. So I grew up reading that and kind of like almost obsessively. I'd be like, where's my Sunday like kids section? And then I graduated to regular Newsday and I was always studying it. I was like, oh, there are AP stories. Oh, there are these writers. Oh, I like this television critic. And I remember, I think it was Alan's, I, forgive me if I, uh, I say his last name wrong, but Alan Seipenwall was writing for Newsday at the time. I was obsessed with his TV reviews. And I followed him since to Rolling Stone and, and throughout his career because I, I just, and I still follow him on Twitter. So, but yeah, I started like paying attention to bylines and all of that. And like seeing like, oh, sometimes there's wire copies. Sometimes there isn't very weird thing for like a 12 year old, but but yeah, even today, like my parents will be like, oh, didn't you see this story? Oh, there were, there was these things happening. And they, I always joke, they often are, you know, I hadn't heard about it because I'm on the West Coast. So sometimes I won't hear about things that are happening in New York. They'll be like, oh, you better look that up. You better get on that. So if you think your editor is keeping you on your toes, sometimes your parents are because my parents <laughs> will be like, oh, you, you got to know about this. And like, I think it was the day that George Santos, my parents kind of, they live near George Santos's old territory and a little bit. So, and they used to joke when they would like go to certain stores, like they were going into Santos territory. And when Santos was expelled, I, I texted them, I was like, oh, George Santos. And they were like, yeah, we know, we know. <laughs> like we knew that hours ago. And I'm like, well, I'm from the West Coast. So, you know, but they're, they're very definitely people who love stories and they love keeping up with the news. And even when my parents are visiting, my dad found a way to get New York news through Spectrum because Spectrum has, the, they have all the channels from the country and my dad found New York One. And so now when he visits, he just has New York One on. So that's, that's I think that can probably give you a sense of like how much my parents want to keep up with the world and news. And I really feel like that definitely inspired me. Throughout let, my me say, let me say that, that reading Newsday intensely at 12 is not that unusual for, <laughs> at least for me, I grew up that way too. But let's dive into some of your jobs because you've had a fairly eclectic career. I just, for each of these things that I'm going to bring up, just give me the, the single biggest takeaway that you got from doing it. First, Chattanooga, Tennessee, you were a sports writer for the Chattanooga Free Press for two and a half years. Oh my gosh. One thing, right? Southern hospitality is real and I'm sorry, I'm going to have two. Uh, Southern hospitality is definitely real. I made some of the best friends I have ever made there who were so kind to a green 22-year-old from New York City and try new things. I was also outdoors editor there and they always give that to the junior most reporter. And I my I think my my editor at the time also got a kick out of me being the New Yorker covering like hunting and fishing and bike riding and but I had the greatest time doing it and it almost made me sad to give it up because this was something so truly new and they wound up saying like you have the best story ideas because you're seeing this with new eyes 
So that's, that's the compliment I always had gotten from there. So that's, that's what I took. Always try something new. Try something new. And then on to entertainment, you wrote and edited for Bustle for five years, some part-time, some full-time. What was your biggest takeaway from working there? A place is always going to grow and change, especially when you're there for such a long time. I was with Bustle from 2014 when they were a small company. They couldn't even pay us when we binged watch TV shows like the second season of House of Cards. And then by the end of it, they were this huge conglomerate and there were so many different entities and like so much that it was just, it wasn't just Bustle anymore. It was BDG Media and they had separate groups. So I think, especially when you're at a place for a long time, it's going to grow and change. And I will say internally, Bustle grew and changed so much that it, you had to kind of roll with it. Like, so just always make sure that you are growing and adapting to a place as it also grows and changes because sometimes it can happen really unexpectedly. We don't often talk about participatory journalism here, but one of your, I think, more memorable uh, assignments in 2018, you wrote a story about taking a Hollywood stunt fighting class. What was that like to write about? That was very fun. And I will admit that was that was part of a package about stunt coordinators and the often unseen stunt people in movies. And we had this package. I had just joined Bustle full time. And I was, I saw, I was like, okay, I want to take part in the package because that's something of status for a journalist as well. And I had since gotten a little bit of a reputation of doing really good first person pieces. So I wanted to continue that because once you do get that reputation, you want to keep going and you want to keep doing personal essays and stuff. So I saw this in the the package sheet. And I said, Hey, I want to do that. I'm in LA also. I can easily do that. I also want to note that I was starting my fitness journey as well, because I had started full-time at Bustle. I felt like I had, you know, I started to have like a fitness incentive for my insurance. I had insurance. So I thought it was a great time to do it. I had just, you'll see in the piece, I mentioned my trainer, Chris, who I'm, I still work with. And uh, I had just started a fitness journey. And I will say also, I went into it not really that well prepared, I will say, because even my my fitness trainer was like, are you sure? Because it can get very hardcore in there. But I, I really enjoyed it because it was something that I could really dig into. I could, I, the piece came together. It was one of those pieces that came together really nicely and that the experiences I had there also were able to reflect. You'll, if anyone read, decides to read the piece, you'll see there was a point where I had a partner who just was like, you are not experienced enough for me and I, this is not a good fit and just changed. And I, I actually uh, wound up getting paired with like someone of similar experience. And I talked to the trainer about that after the instructor after, and he goes, well, yeah, that's actually like a safety thing. It's like, yes, it may bruise your ego, but it's for safety. So I learned a lot there. I also learned about how out of shape I was. So I had continued on my fitness journey since, but yeah, that was like, that was, that was definitely a lot of fun to write about. And I will say very proudly, I had minimal edits to the piece from my editor. And it's one of those that I still read to this day that I'm very proud of. It was, it was very cool. It definitely caught my eye as I was going through uh, your many uh -huh. pieces, uh, trying to find things that were different. Speaking of different, how do you differentiate the different celebrity interviews or press junket stories that you did when you were there? I would say that it 
it's true like a lot of them can run together a lot of them are also at the same hotel in LA a lot of them you, you I went to the same four or five hotels in LA all the time publicists love the four seasons they love I want to there's this one in Hollywood that closed during the pandemic or sorry Beverly Hills during the pandemic that I'm forgetting but I, I constantly so they're in the same hotels you're likely seeing the same publicists and in fact there were times where I like the publicist would be like oh hi Mallory it's good to see you again and I'd be like oh my god that's right we're we're meeting again I've seen you like three times in this month I will say that I think how do I differentiate each one takes so much preparation and that's something that I always remember is I may not, the junkets may themselves be a blur because you literally have five minutes with everybody, whether it's print or on camera, you get five minutes, then you start to see this. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to describe what I'm doing right now, but I'm like, I'm swirling my finger in a tornado that that is the international wrap, it up. wrap up, wrap it up. And basically that is what you're just constantly waiting to see because the publicist, it's it's kind of an assembly line of interviews. So I always remember the preparation, whether it's preparing for a game, there's an intense amount of preparation. I will usually take about an hour or two to come up with the questions, get those questions approved because at Bustle, that was the process. You got those questions approved. You even, you even have to get the game approved by the publicist. So there's just a lot of work that goes in for that, and I would say that a lot of the my some of my favorite ones are just the ones that created the most laughs. But you, I know for a fact, were very like I. There was one about I think it was for what women want, and it was for office scenarios of like how would you deal with a these certain office scenarios and like how and that was just really fun because I got to mine some experience and then some I also looked up online I've also had to there was one specific interview I had for a I would say like awards contender movie that just didn't really didn't really budge but this actor and I'm not going to name them by name but this actor who is kind of an internet boyfriend completely would not answer my questions. He was not playing around. He was not, he was not willing to, he was not willing to indulge like talking about the character with the character thought. He would just be like, I'm just an actor. I'm just an actor. And so I had to pivot on the spot. And that's one of the ones that is very different for me is because it was a print interview. We're just on the couch and I'm here. I had done junkets for a year at this point. And I was like, oh my God, he's not answering any of my questions. So I had to pivot immediately. And I just wound up talking to him about this the high profile actor that he loved working with on set and he wound up opening up and so it's I would say for junkets it's about using your time wisely but also about finding those inroads and you don't have a lot of time to do it you're really thinking on your feet so those are two that I think stand out in my mind of kind of fun and being able to like preparation really making a difference and for that one all the preparation I did kind of went out the window and I had to improvise. So you were also a story editor and writer for Parcast Studios in their weekly and daily podcast for three and a half years. I found 74 episodes for shows like Conspiracy Theories, Cults, Today and True Crime. What was the best thing you learned from doing that job? Audio is very different. Audio is a different medium. Uh, Parcast was my introduction to audio. Before I was full-time at Parcast, I was also a freelance writer for two years that's another instance where once it was bought by Spotify it completely changed and it was for for 
better for the most part. I think for ParCast, what I learned there is that details, details, details. Audio, I always say, is a medium where you can't hide. In print, you can often hide. I, I joke with my students, print you can hide with like, you got your M dashes, you, you can just break into another section and audio transitions and transitional phrases really make the difference. You can't, you, you know, the mic can hear if you, and very ironic that we're talking about this here, the mic can hear if you are smiling or miserable. I always tell my students, if you're going in the booth and you're going to be recording, don't, you, you got to come naturally or else we're going to hear if you're trying too hard. And that's the same thing when writing the scripts. I, you really have to know your, your, what you're talking about. And you, podcast scripts are so, were so detailed that you almost had to become an expert in the subject because I, I feel like almost like every time I handed in a script, I was defending a thesis because they were so detailed and so, so sound and like, and even when I handed in scripts that I was proud of, sometimes I'd get all these questions back about why this, why that? You have to understand again that, and I, I understood later, I was like, okay, yeah, they're asking these questions because the medium, when, especially when it's kind of a one-way medium, if the, if the listener starts to have too many questions, they get turned off. And so that was our way of getting in front of that. And, and it gave me a much deeper understanding of audio. And I'm very, very very thankful for that. You mentioned 74 episodes. What's the work that you've done within that time that you're most proud of? Oh, man. So back in 2021, which was, I want to say, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I had worked on this 9-11 special for a show called Conspiracy Theories. I want to note that a lot of times that name, that show name is a misnomer because we did a lot of deep history associated with debunking conspiracies. And for 9-11, Unfortunately, a an, a an incident that elicited a lot of tension from conspiracy theorists, almost the birth of the modern conspiracy movement. We wanted, you know, we had sent the folks at Parcast had assembled a team to do this six part special, and I immediately was like, "Yes, I I need to be on that team because when I was, I I was in New York." during 9-11. I'd grown up and then I had gotten into NYU for undergrad. Within my first two weeks at NYU, 9-11 happened. And I was at class, it was 8 a.m. And my gen, I think it was like a general education English class. He walked in with his like giant backpack and he walks in and he goes, the instructor is like late. And we were like, where were you? Can we leave? And he was like, all of you need to contact your loved ones and leave. Bye. And so he just left and that's, I wound up going to Bob's library. If anyone goes to NYU, you know, Bob's library went on one of the computers. This is before you bring la your laptops to class. And I read online that two planes hit the, the world trade center and wound up with my friend. We were kind of wandering out Washington square park, not knowing what to do. And we watched the set, the second tower fall from Washington square park. So with that experience in mind, and, you know, again, 9-11 has shaped a lot of my formative years. My formative years reporting at NYU were based around the Iraq war and going to protests. And most of my assignments were go to a protest and talk to people. So that that time period is really embedded in my mind. So when 
going back to Parcast, when they had assembled that team, I wanted to be on it. And I was very lucky that I, I had one of the best editors at Parcast. She was leading it and was very open to all the experiences of the people on the team. I had suggested a bunch of like resources. I was able to give in my, my personal experience and the team was like very, very open to hearing that. And I think they, we did a really great job. The two episodes I did are the tail end. Uh, one is about basically following George W. Bush throughout the, basically before, during and after, and then leading up to Osama bin Laden's capture. And then the, my favorite, favorite, favorite one I've ever done. And the one I'm most proud of is the the finale which is follows 9-11's legacy throughout time and it was just one I swear I feel like it's one of those things where I was like I've always wanted to write this I just never had the opportunity so it was one of it was a great like faded moment where I was like okay finally I get to and I never I've never written an episode so quickly <laughs> that one just flowed out and even the outlining process they were like wow you you did this fast and I was like I have been meaning to write this my entire life you've done all these different types of things we've talked about this podcast we've talked about bustle we've talked about some of the other things that you've done what's the process of creating like for you i always joke it's it's i i wish it was gl as glamorous as like some of my friends who are like oh i'm gonna go to a cafe and write and because i'm in los angeles anytime i go to a cafe i swear i see all of these computers open and i see these like empty google docs with like the cursor blinking and i'm like I, I wish I could be like that. I'm I'm very much like a home writer and I'm also a night writer. I think it's just been, I'm also a night owl and I think I've just been conditioned that way. But it, it, is it always orderly? No, I will say that I think every piece is different. Every, I think I, I try to outline as much as I can. Bustle and even, I have a master's degree in screenwriting. And the screenwriting program at USC is very much on structure and outlines. And like, I'm going to show you something right now. And then I will describe it for those listening. I'm outlining a novel and like, I try to do all the, the structure stuff. This is what I was doing last night. All the, the structure sequences and all of that and three act structure and all. And, and so I'm very like, I believe in that kind of stuff, but I also think that even if you are a true evangelist of the structure, the hero's journey and all these structures that you have to understand that things will change in the writing process. And I think that's true for podcasts. I think that's true for articles. I've had that happen where you stumble upon a quote you didn't even realize you had. And I think that's true in creative screenwriting or, or creative fiction. So I think every, you know, like I've said before, I've had some articles and some podcasts that the structure just came to me and I'm very lucky that I've had those experiences where like this article just like oh came out and <laughs> not many edits your editor loves it and I wish each one was like that and that's not always the case I think I've had my share of podcasts and articles that were not easy to write and that I was just kind of I was in, you know, not maybe not in the cafe. I don't think I'm quite a cafe writer, but I was staring at the Google, the blinking cursor going, ah, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I think in those cases, what I try to do is, and I will admit, sometimes I'm a little bit of a chaotic writer. I will, I think I sometimes get so tripped up about the lead that I'll be like, oh, it has to be perfect. 
it's never going to be perfect. The lead is one of the things that you're going to rewrite the most. And I've had rewritten the most. And sometimes, and this is what I used to do at ParCast a lot too. We didn't have leads, but we had uh, cold opens or teasers. And I would just skip it. I would just be like, you know what? I'm going to write the nut graph. Sometimes the nut graph is just easier. You know what the story you're telling is. Same thing with podcasts. I would just be like, all right, I'm pasting the intro in and the outro. Let's 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 go to the meat of it and maybe the rest will come later. So I think, yeah, I think that's a lot of my process of just, it, it sometimes everything is different and appreciating that, you know, if it feels different or it doesn't feel as easy, trying to see what parts of it you can tackle while you work through the other parts. I really do believe that creativity percolates and sometimes the stories you have right now are not going to be the ones that are, you know, that hit right now. So like, for instance, I used to, I had like a lot of pitches when I first started freelancing. Did they all get approved? No. Some took years to get any traction or I had to make relationships with publications and editors before I even tackled them. So I think it's a matter of like, I think ideas all have the right time when they do. And I also think, you know, sometimes creativity wise too, you know, something I also am a big believer in if if it's just not happening for you, sometimes take a walk, sometimes turn off your brain. Sometimes I do the dishes and I'm like, I'm just going to turn off my brain for a little bit. And that's usually when I have the best ideas or some kind of breakthrough and go, okay, okay. And then, you know, if I'm on a walk, I'll run home and like start working because I'll be like, oh, the, the idea came to me. So you're now working on another podcast project, Electric Futures. And that seems like a significant departure from true crime. What is that podcast and what are you doing? So Electric Futures is a podcast I was brought on at USC. Basically, Charles Zukowski, he is now the Vivian Professor of Chemical Engineering at USC's Viterbi School of Engineering. And he had met with Allison Agston, who is the director of USC Annenberg's Center for Climate journalism communication. I'm on, these are all like long titles. I'm trying to get them right. And they had together formulated this podcast and the Center for Climate Journalism has these really great climate best practices. And we they wanted to apply it to this research on lithium extraction in Imperial Valley, that issue and exploring that. So Electric Futures was formula with this idea came forth. Electric Futures would be a podcast that explored lesser known stories of the energy transition and season one would focus on lithium extraction in Imperial Valley using the climate best practices. And while it may seem like a departure, it's it's actually not as much as you might think, even though I was coming from true crime and dark history. And the reason is, is that before I left, before I was laid off from Parcast, in the spring, there was one of my friends at Parcast. He had actually spearheaded this climate-focused uh, Earth Day special, and we were using climate best practices. So it was very fortunate crossover here that uh, I was working with him on an episode, and I had gotten to know a Spotify has an impact team, and I had heard a lot of these climate best practices, and was really fascinated by it, and saw like firsthand that climate podcasting and and earth issues and science podcasting is really having a moment right now. So flash forward to the summer, I'm a free agent and the former provost and 
the director of the Climate Journalism Center contacts me and I was like, oh yeah, this sounds really, really great. We went to Imperial Valley a bunch of times. We interviewed people. A few weeks ago, we went down to Kwame Point in, in the San Diego mountains to interview somebody. And it's been really refreshing and it, it's a narrative journalism podcast. So I, I actually took a lot of what I learned at ParCast storytelling wise, like the skill, storytelling skills and the narrative journalism skills I got from there. I can't, I cannot tell you when I was like editing, I was editing Charles's scripts and there's a lot of like, oh, it's like, oh, you need the transition here. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm at ParCast again. <laughs> Basically, you know, the same thing. And even, you know, ParCast was really great in that it instilled a lot of professionalism within podcasting. It knew that for, you know, one thing I will say that the founder of ParCast, Max Cutler, something that was always really important to him was the professionalism of the scripts. And I remember when I interviewed with him years ago, he was like, I want them to look professional, no, no spelling mistakes. And like, they would have intros and outros. And that's something, that's a lesson I've kept through. I brought to Electric Futures. But Electric Futures comes out January 24th, 2024 on platforms. And we're really excited uh, for people to hear uh, about Imperial Valley. And we really consider it to be kind of a journey into this not always talked about place in southwestern, sorry, southeastern California. It is about 300 miles from Los Angeles and it's near something a lot of people know, which is the Salton Sea, but people know about it from a lot of documentaries. So I'm very interested to hear how people react to this, this very, again, it's a science podcast, but based around the narrative of real citizens, you're going to hear like real Imperial, you're going to hear from Imperial Valley residents about like how they feel about this new industry coming in. Yeah, very much storytelling from what I gleaned from listening to a sample of it. Um, what are the, you've, you've done so many different things. There are a lot of issues that you seem to be passionate about within the field. You were a union rep and a DEI committee chair at Spotify. You write for NBCU in support of things like paid edit tests. And then you do work for the AAJA, the Asian American Journalists Association. What are the journalism issues that you're most passionate about? I think DEI is definitely when I am a person of color, I'm half Chinese. Uh, my mother has always been a very passionate advocate and has often said to me in jest, but mostly serious, you know, she'll see like a group of white reporters on CNN and she'll be like, you need to do something about that. And I was like, okay, okay. Um, at the time I was like 26. I'm like, okay, hold on. But, you know, I've taken that to heart, especially, you know, over the years I've been a journalist. Sometimes I will see DEI committees of maybe with one person of color. And it used to make me really, you know, it would get very frustrating because there, unfortunately, in the industry, there are a lot of microaggressions. There's a lot of misunderstandings. Everyone needs everything yesterday. So there's always, you know, look, it's a workplace. There's always going to be certain clashes. But some hurt more than others, especially when it comes to microaggressions and not understanding each other. So that's still definitely an issue I am very, very passionate about. I love AJ's mission. I've been a AJ member since I graduated from college. I will not say here. It will date me a lot, but I, I've always believed in their mission. I've actually found a lot of my first friends from the industry at an AJA convention. And 
they just make really valuable connections, whether you're an early career journalist, and I actually just did their ELP program, which is for mid-career journalists this year, and I found a lot of wonderful journalists who I didn't realize it were also in the same issue, same crossroads as me of being in the industry for so long and wondering what's next. Do, do you go to management? Do you break out on your own? What do you do next? So it was really wonderful. And, and also by mid-career, you've you've had some brushes with great experiences and not so great experiences. So it was really wonderful to hear that I was not alone. I, I really edit paid edit test is a huge one that I'm it's, I will say that article was inspired by a conversation with my students who one day, one of my students, again, some sometimes they're just they're so sweet and they're just like, oh, I just want to get a great job. But who opened up and just said, why are these edit tests so involved? And I was like, well, do I have some stories for you? And I wound up showing them one that really, I don't know, there's some, some edit tests take over a lot of boundaries and like ask for so much for free. Earlier this year, I had a company want me to do a six hour unpaid edit test while I was still at Parcast. So I was working full time. I was like, when, when do you want me to do? I have to take, I can't take off from work uh, to do this. And I, the edit test that this article specifically was inspired by was one at another podcasting company. It was 17 pages and they gave me two weeks to do it. And then they grilled me about it in the interview. And it was humiliating because I will say there's a point when you get into an edit test like that and you're wondering how much of this is going to get used or how much of my ideas are they going to use? Like I, I, you start to really wonder. So uh, that is an issue I'm really passionate about just because I'm now seeing my students dealing with that. And I, I really, they're asking these questions and Gen Z is very uh, observant as, as I think many people are understanding now, they, they pay attention to these things. They're going to ask wh why, why am I not getting paid? Where's this going? I, I really, I really hope that we're less exploitive of the job interview process, especially with so many people right now who are not currently employed, who are on LinkedIn, unfortunately, posting their six months out of work, a year out of work. That kind of process can really exploit people who just want to find their next journey. And it's 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 rough out there. And especially, you know, I, I am also like, especially because I was impacted as well by the audio industry. So uh, there are so many people who have not found work yet. And I really fear for people who... Again, you get to that point, but you don't want to be giving away ideas for free. You should never be working for free. And we're talking about jobs and job searches and, and people listing their statuses. You're doing a lot uh, in that regard, too. Explain what West Coast Media Jobs, the newsletter, is. The West Coast Media Jobs I is a newsletter focused on journalism jobs for remote work in journalism and jobs based in California and the Pacific Northwest. I started about, oh my God, now it's going to be four years ago. I can't believe it. I started right before the pandemic, right after I got late, I got not laid off. Oh, sorry. I'm too used to saying that after I got rejected from or ghosted from the LA times, I had interviewed for the LA times and I got, I got I got rejected and I spent basically I had interviewed for the LA times, I think right before Christmas. 
And then I spent like Christmas break just being like, please, I hope I get this job. I really wanted it. And I didn't. So I saw, I wound up seeing who they hired on Twitter. And, and, you know, not, you know, I feel like it's a very modern journalism story. And I wound up spending that January kind of bummed out and wondering, okay, if it's not the LA Times, then where will I work? And, you know, something about job searching can be a really lonely process, but it can feel a lot lonelier when you're not in New York. One of the things I always was jealous of from my friends at Bustle, a Bustle is based in New York, even after their layoff, they would get to go have drinks and then by these New York City media drinks, they would find other jobs. They would hear about it through the grapevine. LA journalists aren't really like that. LA is very spread out. Uh, we, uh, I always say the saying in New York is we'll get drinks and then people actually get them. In LA, the saying is we'll get drinks and they we never do. You just never do. Traffic is a nightmare here. We are so far away from each other. There's also a saying you never cross La Brea unless it's someone special. And that's just because the city is divided into two parts. So I, you know, it was that January, I was just kind of sitting there and I was like, I wish there was a resource. I had joined a bunch of resources, but they were all for like new freelance writers. They were all, everyone was from New York and everyone, it was so New York centric. And there are certain quirks that journalists in LA and outside of New York have that I wanted to create a resource that was based within that. And also Luis Gomez had a California media jobs newsletter that had just previously folded in. And I had actually, he had kind of offered it up to subscribers if anyone wanted to take it over. I had, I had applied, but I did not get it. And it just had since folded. So with that hole in that, in the kind of newsletter realm, I decided to, to start a newsletter. And since it's grown into uh, me doing some coaching. I did some coaching throughout the pandemic for free, and now I'm offering it a paid service as well. And I've also, I offer a paid subscription, although I always say you don't have to choose that. I, I also understand that when you are job searching, you're not always in a position to, to give money. Um, but I do offer that for those who want to, because people had pledged over the years and I was like, oh, wow, that's very nice of them. And I also now will be in starting in January from a subscriber's suggestion, starting a job seeker meetup to kind of be ease, you know, that I had done a coaching session with this person. They said, it's so lonely. It's so nice to talk with a fellow job seeker. Like, can we do something? And I was like, I have had this idea for a while. So let's, you know, or at least trying to do a meetup of some kind, but I liked their suggestion of making it a job seeker meetup to talk about talk through issues and stuff like that. Very cool. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? I'm going to go with AAJA. I, I really do believe in the organization. I think they've done really great things. They're also always there whenever we need a style. How do I put this? A a guidance on how to cover Asian American issues. And they were really on top of things during unfor the unfortunate Stop Asian Hate era during 2020 and 2021, during the pandemic when Asians were seeing a rise in violence. And I was really comforted by the fact that AJ was always there with resources and guidance on how to cover these issues. I really, I think that has been a huge comfort. And, you know, I 
I, I also think the conventions are really wonderful. And I also just want to shout out not just AAJ, but the affinity groups in general. I know NABJ, uh, National Association of Black Journalists, and NAHJ, National Association of Hispanic Journalists, they do amazing, amazing work. And I, you know, I even know people on the boards and they're, they're just tremendous. And I think for people of color, they are these hubs that sometimes don't exist in your own newsroom. You will absolutely find them at these conventions. They are always honestly worth it to, to me. And I, that's why I've made the effort over the years to go. And you you will find your people. I, 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 it's, it's, it's really, they're really wonderful. And I think they do amazing work. And one more thing to plug, you have a food Instagram ac account, Couch Potato Cook. What is the purpose of that? So I originally started it just about 10 years ago. Wow. Because my friends used to get really, I don't know, I, I was a big food Instagram. I would post it to my personal and I felt like they were getting annoyed. And uh, I was like, well, you know, I want to be able to post as much food as I want. So I started a new one and it wound up taking off in a lot of different ways, especially during kind of the height of the Instagram algorithm. And it's really in, it actually grew into an independent journalism, independent blog for a while for me. I was doing Q and A's with chefs. I would have PR people reaching out to do, wanting me to cover their chefs and parlayed it into some uh, freelance food uh, journalism and for now for mo now really is mostly a great place for me to express how much I love food and I'm hoping to maybe make it in uh, use my podcasting skills and and maybe strike out and make a podcast based around that but we shall see I I will say that one of the the I I've done a bunch of sponsored work through it as well when I'm not bound by non-competes and it's it honestly it's it's been my like my fun Instagram and I, I've made a lot of friends through it and it's been it's been a great journey and like I said these days it's mostly self-expression I, I still love sharing the food and like great places to eat with people and and also where I've traveled and that kind of discovery but yeah, a lot of I, and it's funny because like I, I, I know it has a large following. So anytime I, 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 basically I went to Stockholm with some coworkers last winter, and they saw me taking pictures of food, and I was like, okay, it's about time I let you know why I'm doing this. And they all got a kick out of it. They were like, oh my god. And so, what's really nice is once people know, they're like, okay, wait, hold on, nobody eat. Mallory has to take pictures of food. But like I said, it's it's kind of opened a, a great amount of doors for me and it's just been a lot of fun. Mallory Cara, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck with your many different projects. We hope to be following them as you go along. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at journalismpod and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.